Pubcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And in one corner, I invite folks to install a speaker's corner where you could get up and say anything without reprisal. It was a safe place. I think people need a safe place in their own mind where they can say whatever they want to themselves at least. doesn't mean they're then going to say it in the world. Maybe too dangerous to say to your mate or too dangerous. You may still want to restrain yourself with respect to public speaking, but you should at least be able to say these truthful things to yourself. Welcome to the Liberated Healer podcast, where we touch on a variety of topics in the world of spirituality, energetic healing, and everything in between and beyond. Take an adventure on a shooting star with your hosts, Gina and Linnea, offering their wisdom, guidance, and everlasting love and support. Hi, my name is Gina Cavalier, and we're here today with the Liberated Healer podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm Linnea Hodson, your other host of the Liberated Healer podcast. And today we're lucky enough to have Dr. Eric Maisel on with us today. Thank you for joining us. Lovely to be here. And we are talking to him today about Redesign Your Mind, a book from Mango Publishing. And they're a wonderful group of people that we love talking to their authors. Always so well-written and um, always something really unique to stay, say. And um, it's always nice to speak to doctors, especially doctors who have put out 50 books. So um, very honored for you to be here with us today and to help us move into the future of mental health, which we all need something. And you have a very unique way of um, bringing, uh, you have a whole new platform of uh, mindfulness and a whole new way to, to express yourself. So if you can just explain a little bit about yourself and what got you to this book and anything that you think would be very fun and interesting to hear. Yeah. First, when I hear myself called a doctor, I think I should be able to perform surgery, but it's a, it's a PhD doctor, not a medical doctor. (laughs) (laughs) So I I won't be performing surgery today. Okay. (laughs) My background is I started out as a math and science boy a long time ago. I thought I'd be in physics or something that stopped interesting me. Because I wasn't interested, I flunked out of college, had to do the next thing, which was join the army. After (laughs) the army, I had no idea what I was doing, so I got a degree in philosophy, which is one of those things you do when you have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) I started writing books, and this was more than 50 years ago. Had a ghostwriting career. I actually lived as a writer in my 20s, writing books with other people's names on the books. Wow. Fiction primarily for myself, nonfiction as a ghostwriter, fiction for myself. I'd done a lot of books by my early 30s, but wasn't bringing in enough money. And we had enough, we had little kids at that point. And the only honorable thing to do was to do something else. So I retooled and became a California licensed therapist. I got new degrees and new licenses and all those things one does when one retools. And as a therapist, I started working with creative performing artists instantly because I thought that that was a niche that interested me. And also, 
a niche that folks weren't looking at. It was an underserviced area. This was before The Artist's Way, before any of my books. This is a long time ago. Mm. So I started working with creative performing artists as a therapist, actually with artist couples, which is about as hard a job as you can do. You have two artists in the room. Both want to stay home and do their art. Neither one wants to go to the day job. So, <laughs> so there are always tensions in, in the room. But be that as it may, I stopped believing in the therapy model almost instantly. Oh. Like within a year or two of getting the license, I did not believe I was diagnosing and treating mental disorders. That wasn't what was going on. These were huh. just people people with challenges, life challenges, ordinary challenges, and to stick a label on them, to call them something or other just didn't seem right. So I've been in what's called the critical psychology and critical psychiatry areas for all of these many years, 40, 50 years, disputing the psychiatric model of diagnosing and treating mental disorders. That, that's a side issue, but that's important because that's one of the things I do. I'm the lead editor for a big new Ethics International Press, Critical Psychology and Critical Psychiatry series of books. So that's one of the things I do. But I segued from therapy to coaching, became a creativity coach, sort of invented the field way back when. And I've been working as a creativity coach with individual artists and groups and what have you, webinars, workshops, all that stuff for a very long time now. I train creativity coaches. And my primary areas of interest are creativity, the creative life, creative process, also life purpose and meaning. I think we've gotten those things kind of wrong, and there are different ways of thinking about it than our conventional ways of thinking about it. So life purpose and meaning have been important to me. And then, as we've mentioned, whole mental health issue, especially the way children are, are being labeled with this, that, and the other, so to speak, mental disorder label, and being given these powerful chemicals that are um, bad for them. Absolutely. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Yes. Um, did you get any pushback well, from your colleagues from kind of big, big pharma sees me not even as a fly on the wall. I'm smaller than a fly on the wall. Uh, in, in critical psychology and critical psychiatry, we're not only disputing what psychiatry has to offer and the Bible of Psychiatry, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. That's the diagnosing Bible. We're not just disputing that, we're disputing these things called medication. We believe they're chemicals with powerful effects, but not medication because they're not treating actual illnesses. So that means we're dealing with the biggest institutions in the world, psychiatry, academia, big pharma. They don't yeah. notice this. So they're not afraid of me. <laughs> it's still, um, you know, something of a challenge when you're going against something like that. And it can be scary. Um, I have a, a few other uh, friends in the profession that, you know, have had to go through their own journey. And so I commend you in that effort because we need to have people that um, know the background, have studied it, have lived it, and have made a uh, decision based on real life experience in doing the work. Yeah. By the way, when I say that there's no pushback, that's actually not literally true. Um, point came some years ago, I had dubbed the philosophy I was thinking about natural psychology. That's what I was just calling it. 
seemed like a nice phrase to me. And the American Psychological Association came at me with a civil and criminal lawsuit saying they own the word psychology, and <laughs> which is about as preposterous. You know, every sane person will shake their heads at the idea that an organization can own the word psychology. Yeah. But nevertheless, I have a good friend who's a federal prosecutor, and I chatted with him. And he said, you'd win a lawsuit, but it would take the rest of your life fighting it. So just relax. Let them have natural psychology back. Give in. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. what happens when you're when you're facing huge institutions is maybe maybe you can win in some kind of dogfight, but you'd, you'd lose for winning. So uh, I let yeah. that one go. And so I, I, I'm just going to, you can kind of interject after I kind of mention this kind of in a little bit of a deeper way, but most people have, you know, emotions, you know, say sadnesses or traumas or things that they're trying to get through. And that's just a natural thing in life. So when you throw medication at it, they're not learning how to process the, uh, these emotions and like, is that Absolutely. And let me let me go an inch deeper into that. Um, I have a little theory of personality, a little three part theory that personality is made up of original personality, formed personality and available personality. Very simple model. But the original personality part is ignored by psychology. Psychology and psychiatry act like we come into the world blank slates. But anybody who's had kids or kittens or puppies knows that every creature comes into the world itself already. There's the more inquisitive kitten and the less inquisitive kitten. Animals come in, human species, all species come into the world themselves. So why might it not be the case that some human beings come into the world a little sadder than the next person? That's not a mental disorder, that's a difference. And so if you come into the world a little more sensitive, a little sadder, a little more, a better reality tester, this, that, and the other thing, then you're going to have the lifelong challenge of being a little sadder than the next person. Nothing about a mental disorder there, but a lifelong challenge. And so it is incumbent upon us to figure out how to how to lift that veil of sadness. One of the visualizations I have in the book we're chatting about, Redesign Your Mind, is, is when you come into the room that is your mind, take off that heavy overcoat, that heavy overcoat of sadness so that you can enter the room that is your mind a little lighter. But these are just techniques, strategies for dealing with which with things that may be completely inborn, not learned, not about us understanding the world and being sad about the world, but us being built to be sad. It's entirely possible. And as I say, both psychology and psychiatry pay no interest to the idea that we may come into the world already somebody. Mm. Now, do you, in your experience working with you know, creative individuals, creative professionals, do you see that they tend to be more emotional people or what is your experience with working with those types of people in particular, you know, coming as someone who is a creative professional and so is Gina. So I'm very interested in this. <laughs> well, there are a ton of things to say there. Um, one subject that we're not allowed to speak about is the idea that some people might be smarter than other people and that there might be some special challenges of being smart. I did a book called Why Smart People Hurt, and I have a book coming out in a couple of months called Why Smart Teens Hurt. There are special challenges if you see the world in such a way that you can follow arguments and understand how, I don't know, climate change works or what have you. If you're that kind of person, then you're going to face special and new difficulties just by virtue of being smart. 
Right. If you're a creative person and you're in the marketplaces that we find ourselves in as a creative person, then you're probably going to have grave difficulties in making your mark. If, if there are a thousand concert pianists who are able to play solo sonatas and only one gets the gig, there are 999 sad pianists out there. Right. And that's true of every area of the creative sphere, especially now where anybody can write on medium or post imagery on whatever on Instagram. Everybody can be an artist. That's wonderful on the one hand. But if you're trying to live a creative life, have a creative career, Mm -hmm. then you have to deal with this explosion of ability of people to express themselves. So as as I say, there's a lot to say there. I don't know that... um, Creative people are necessarily more sensitive than anyone else, but their lives often mimic, they don't have bipolar disorder, but it mimics bipolar disorder because you work on something, you're engrossed, maybe you're even racing a little bit, maybe there's a little mania there just because you're really working on something. So there's a peak and then you finish it and you naturally plummet. There's a bit of a meaning crisis after the end of everything that we finish. There's this gap or void after we finish something. So then we, we hit a trough. So it looks, so our life looks like this. And it's easy to get a diagnosis of bipolar disorder just because of the way our life looks. It's not a fair label, but it's customary now to throw labels at these kinds of uh, life experiences. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, like, that makes so much sense. I mean, we're, and plus, we're, we're just expected to always be these perfect little beings, you know, not to have emotions. You oh, know? Only girls. Only girls. I'm not expected to be perfect. <laughs> so, oh, okay. So you really do believe little that? Joke. Little joke. But it feels, it feels like that. So even when you're a parent and you're a kid and you have an emotion, they're like, do everything to shut you up. Instead of going, why are you hurting? Why are you crying? What can we do? And, and, and kind of you know, work with that. It's just, you're told just to. Absolutely. Let me just give you the the headline proof of what's wrong with psychiatry. The average time that a psychiatrist spends with a new patient is get ready 15 minutes. What can happen in 15 minutes? It just has to be a checklist procedure where it's bump, bump, bump prescription. It has to be that. Count in 15 minutes. All that can happen is that you see four patients an hour. That's all that can happen. So there can't be any exploration of what's going on. And the DSM is silent. The the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, that's a mouthful, is silent on causation and silent on treatment. It's only about symptom pictures, Little these little pictures. Everything's diagnosed on the basis of pictures. And there's no reason why these symptoms logically hang together. We're just sold this bill of goods that if, that if you're eating less and have fatigue, that's clinical depression. Well, maybe you're eating less because you're on a diet. Maybe you have fatigue because you're very busy. But still, those are symptoms of clinical depression. the natural things we do should not be used that way. There should be, for instance, tests for something. There are no tests in psychiatry of any sort, no blood test. It's not a medical profession. It's a labeling profession. 
So yeah. I know we're off not where redesign your mind is. I know we're off in the weeds a little bit, but it's important stuff, as I say, especially with respect to kids who have no um, advocates in this particular um, lane. Yeah. Their, and their parents are naturally going to kind of believe these, so to speak, experts. And if the person you go see, the psychologist or psychiatrist or family therapist or this person or the other, says, well, of course your boy has ADHD. Look, he's bouncing all over the place. And it's no longer permissible to say boys bounce all over the place. Yeah. A parent can't come back with that in this climate. Parent just has to nod and say, oh, ADHD. Yes, let's have some opioids. That sounds fine. Right. Sounds just wonderful. Yeah. This is actually... I haven't thought about this in a long time, but this is something that my brother actually experienced when he was a really young kid. He was like insane, just like bouncing off the walls, going crazy. And he was going to like neurologists and psychologists every single week. He got diagnosed with ADHD. Luckily, my parents did not put him on any medication because they don't, they did not believe in that. They didn't want to do that. They were trying to find like a more holistic approach to it. But in reality, my brother was just, incredibly intelligent and more advanced than like the other kids in his class. And he's bouncing all over the place because bored. like he, he, he lost, every, like, lost everyday yeah. language, like being bored. Yeah. Yeah. And then a famous actor, who was the actor in silence of the lambs? Can we remember his name? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, we I'm know sure who we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah. I, I won't read a quote from him. He said, I was so bored in class that I drank ink. <laughs> this was in the days of ink wells. You know, you just sit yeah. down and drink. You know, if you're if you are intelligent, those those how can you sit in a third grade class or a fourth grade class without I have to tell a little anecdote. I was so bored. This is this is so politically incorrect that I, I should never say it out loud, but there was a cute girl in front of me in third grade or fourth grade, and I was so bored that I would pull her pigtails. <laughs> finally, finally, she turned around and stabbed me with a pencil. I still have a mark here. <laughs> but that's that's the that's the truthful dynamics of third grade and fourth grade. You're not going to learn history facts and and no. whatever conjugate French. You know, at any rate. But it, then again, we go back to that thing where we're telling that individual as a child, "You're wrong. You know, yep. you're wrong. You're wrong." Right. You're sick. That child just wants to be in a field and is like attached to the earth and very grounded and wants to be out in nature and you're sitting them and forcing them into a chair. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't a perfect childhood be sort of out in the fields running around all day long? You come in, there's a sandwich ready for you. You eat the sandwich. You have nothing to say to anybody. You run back out. You run around again. That's a perfect childhood. There's no ADHD. Yeah. You're not supposed to know anything at that age. Who cares when Bismarck landed on whatever? You just should be able to have a childhood. And we there are lots of books out about how children are being robbed of their childhood. And, and there are different kinds of cases being made for that point of view. And they're all true that kids are being robbed of their childhood. Yeah. And that's why I, I really did like your book, Des- Redesign Your Mind, because it was for everybody, including children. Mm-hmm. And it's very gentle. And why don't you go ahead and kind of ex- it's and sure. um, it's something that um, I felt was um, 
like you said, for the creative mind as well, because I think that you might know the numbers more than I do, but I think 65% of people prefer using a creative outlet um, to help them with anxiety or to change different patterns in their mind is, is to visualize, visualize things. So you might know more of the stats. I don't don't know that number, but I know that people uh, need tactics and strategies that match their desires in life. Visualization, redesign your mind is based on the idea of visualization, which is a tactic or a technique or a strategy that was invented in a certain hospital in Northern California many years ago, many decades ago now, where somebody had the idea of inviting cancer patients to envision their healthy cells defeating their cancerous cells. Mm -hmm. So it started out as a medical intervention or in the medical field, and it turned out to be very powerful. This idea sending your soldier healthy cells off to fight your cancerous cells. And over the years, visualization is used in all kinds of ways, professional athletes, all kinds of ways. In Redesign Your Mind, I came up with the idea that we could visualize our mind as a room that we inhabit, which I think is actually our experience of our mind. I think we do experience it as a place we inhabit in a certain sense. In Western culture, we we experience it as above our eyes, but not every culture experiences our mind as above our eyes, which is interesting. But we do. We tend to experience that room that is our mind above our eyes, where where our brain is. And so I had the idea that it should be possible to visit that room and make changes, redesign it and redecorate it. Why not? If you can visit the room that is your mind, why not make it the room you want it to be? Why not make it as as friendly and uh, habitable as possible. So that's the that's the idea of the book. Then I began to realize that this actually took cognitive therapy a step forward because cognitive therapy interests itself in the thoughts that emerge from the brain, the thoughts, mm-hmm. but not the source of the thoughts. And that this was perhaps actually more fundamental to if you were to change your mind, you would then change how you think and not just the thoughts that you think. And that actually seemed like a big deal idea. So that's one of the um, conceits of the book is that it's important to do this work. It's not just another tactic, but it's important to visualize our mind as a room that we can visit, inhabit, change, redecorate. And then on, on the specific level, there are lots of things to do. I think there are 60 or 70 things to do in the book, but let me just name a few. One is, and I kind of love this one, one is just installing windows and then throwing them open so that a breeze blows through because our thoughts are typically so stale and stuffy. We've been thinking the same thoughts for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, same thoughts over and over again. Let's blow them out of there. Let's, Let's have a nice breeze blow through. Plus, then with your windows thrown open, you get a vista. You get to look out of those windows onto whatever view, whether it's the sea or a lake or whatever you'd like to see. So that was one simple idea of installing windows. Another important one, what you were saying before, Gina, about um, however you were saying of people feeling bad about themselves or feeling weakened by the ways they're characterized. The way I frame it in in Redesign Your Mind is that people are in, in the room that is their mind, they're on a bed of nails. It's the way they experience life, as if they were living on a bed of nails. Well, why not throw it out and replace it with an easy chair? Why not throw out the bed of nails and replace it with an easy chair and finally have the experience of being in our own mind in a calm, peaceful, and pleasant way? Why not? 
this this was of course the basic idea this is and was the basic idea of buddhism the buddhist phrase is get a grip on your mind this isn't so much getting a grip on your mind as redesigning your mind and having your mind be the way you want it to be another simple idea was the idea that as you walk in well there might be a light switch but why not have the light switch double as a calmness switch so that when you enter the room that is your mind, you just flip that switch and you're instantly calmer. Everybody's trying to deal with anxiety, mindfulness, meditation, all of these different ideas around the anxiety we're experiencing. It's a highly anxious time. Of course, we all know that. Well, this is one simple device, one simple visualization, one simple tactic to reduce our ambient anxiety is just to flip that calmness switch. Right. So these were, and then the fourth that I'll mention just quickly in passing, it's dingy in there, isn't it? <laughs> so one idea is to repaint the walls a nice bright Navajo white or some, some white that you like or, or, or breezy wallpaper, but something to cheer up that space because we have to, we have to do that work of cheering ourselves up and brightening that space. No one can get in there for us. And I as, like, as obvious as that is to say, nobody can get in, in there for us. Go ahead, Jim, sorry. As we evolve, I mean, we, we might not have needed this type of um, uh, practice hundreds of years ago, but as we evolve, we are taking on so much information and we're, yeah. we're, we're in an evolution right now. And so um we actually need people like you and to create these kind of new ways that really do help us um, clean the the muck out of our lives. Yep. Or, and I think creating a foundation that is gentle like this, that you can even give to a child and then to the parent. And then you can have a conversation saying, well, what does your nice place look like? Yeah. And you know what? Draw like, yeah, draw it. Absolutely. Draw draw the room that is your mind. That would be so much. Kids are never invited to do anything that interesting. <laughs> they, no. would, they would completely enjoy that. By the way, just tying some things that we've all been saying about creative folks. Um, one of Freud said that creative all creative blockage was self-censorship. And that's an overstatement, but but he was on to something. That is that when we're not getting our creative work done, it's often that we are censoring our best ideas for all kinds of reasons that we could name. Partially and importantly, that we don't feel safe. We don't feel safe having a voice. Uh, I'm sure you know that the world's number one phobia is not fear of flying, rats, snakes, bridges, it's public speaking. The world's number one phobia is public speaking. That's how dangerous it feels to say a few words in public. That is the world's number one phobia. So people do experience being public as dangerous. And the creative act is a public act insofar as we mean to put it out there at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the visualizations in the book, and I like this, I think it's important, is so the room has corners as rooms do. And, and in one corner, I invite folks to install a speaker's corner, like the one in Hyde Park in London, which has been there for hundreds of years, where you could get up and say anything without reprisal. It was a safe place. I think people need a safe place in their own mind where they can say whatever they want to themselves at least. It doesn't mean they're then gonna say it in the world. Maybe too dangerous to say to your mate or too dangerous to, 
you may still want to restrain yourself with respect to public speaking, but you should at least be able to say these truthful things to yourself. I've worked with so many memoir writers who think that they're not getting their memoir done because they're not disciplined or this, that, and the other thing. They're not getting it done because they're censoring themselves. They sort of want to write their memoir. They want to tell the story of their marriage without saying anything about their marriage because it's too dangerous to say anything about their marriage. Or they want to get at the truth about their parents except without saying anything about their parents. So you can't have that as a creative person. Yeah. You have to, you have to actually make decisions, I think even conscious decisions, about what you're willing to share as a creative person, or else um, you're gonna be doing more hiding than you know that you're doing. I think that that just goes to show how important it is to make your mind a nice place to exist. Because in my experience, the things that I didn't wanna talk to other people about or you know, share in my artwork or even just tell my best friend are the yep. things that I wasn't even comfortable admitting to myself. Like I was having a hard time even thinking the sentence out in my own little internal monologue because yep. I was judging myself for it first and then immediately assuming that other people were going to judge me for that as well, you know? And but also, and when also you start to make your mind a nice place to exist yep. and you really work on having that be a space that's free of judgment then it makes it so much easier to share that with other people, whether it's a creative endeavor or, you know, just anything that you want to share with people. And, and those thoughts, those difficult thoughts provoke anxiety. And the number one thing we do when we experience anxiety is to flee the encounter. We, we shut it down as best we can. So yeah. That's why we shut down those thoughts. I have an exercise in some book about tolerating a difficult thought for 10 seconds. That's an awfully long amount of time to tolerate a difficult thought, like I need to divorce or I need to leave my job. Or, mm. It's hard to think those kinds of thoughts. Yeah. Just as an aside, I did a book called Life Purpose Bootcamp some years ago. And in the context of that book, um, I did I interviewed a lot of people around life purpose and meaning and mm. people who were in sort of high-ish positions in, in life and what have you. And I learned the following interesting thing across the board. I was surprised by this. Every one of them had had a meaning crisis at some point in their life where the meaning had drained out of their primary thing. Maybe it was teaching and teaching no longer felt meaningful. Or maybe they were religious and they'd lost faith and their order no longer felt meaningful. So they'd had this big crisis. Here's now the headline. I'm coming to the headline. Despite being perfectly clear that the meaning had drained out of it, it took them on average five years to make a change. Yes, to get out of their religious order or to give up teaching or to get out of the religion, five years. That's a long time to remain in pain. Or and to relocate to a place that's not vibing with you anymore. People yep. will stay in that thing, yep. even though yep. they know that it's not resonating with them anymore. Yep. That's why with all clients I coach, I, I sell the idea. I just use this phrase all the time, sooner rather than later. Yeah, and also that change brings about all kinds of new things that you can experience. And, you know, you might, it opens you up to new people and new possibilities. And if you stay in one place, it's... Yep. You, and if you, if you can't see, the, you know, if, if you can't see the consequences, if you can't see the positive possibilities of consequences, if you only see the negativity, like, well, if I get divorced, I'll suddenly be poor or something like that, which these yeah. are, which are true things. We're talking about true things. But if you can't see the positive aspects of it, like I finally get free of this miserable relationship, 
you can't see the positive aspects and it's hard to make that change. One of the ways to, 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 to see positive change, to literally see it, I did an interview on this this morning, which is why it's on my mind. I did, did a book called Sleep Thinking many years ago. And that book is about our brain's ability to think while we sleep, different from dreaming. This is not about dreaming. This is about thinking. We dream in REM sleep, but we think in non-REM sleep. And we have the ability to solve problems, creative problems, but all kinds of life problems while we sleep. If we go to bed with a sleep, what I call a sleep thinking prompt, just to kind of wonder, like, I wonder what it would be like to be out of this relationship. I wonder mm -hmm. what that would be like. And if you turn that over to your sleeping brain, your, your brain will think about that all night long in non-REM sleep. And if you turn to the question in the morning, first thing, you, all you have to do is process the night. You're going you're gonna to be able to take dictation. You're going to have some answers. It's what creative people learn over time, is it, whether it's about power naps or sleep thinking or what have you, but the idea of turning over creative problems to their brain, not pressing, but just turning the problem over, relaxing, so to speak, and then having answers come. But the answers only come if you show up to the work. Mm. A really important point. It's why I try to sell all my creative clients on the idea of a morning creativity practice. Because if you don't get to your creative work first thing, then you can't make use of your sleep thinking. Mm. The, the arc is you go to bed with a sleep thinking prompt, your brain works on it, and you go directly to work, and you get to mine all of that great sleep thinking. That adds a couple of hours to your creative day without any cost because your brain's been working on that all night long for free. Well, you, the, I've been actually doing this lately and it's, it's been amazing. And I do something called morning messages every morning and it's something new I've been doing for about six weeks. And it, I mean, honestly, it's really helping me when I go and I've been, I'm writing a book as well. So sometimes I'm thinking about a chapter and I go yeah. to bed and then I'll, the chapter just starts to unload while I'm in my dreams. And in the morning, I just quickly write down as much as I can remember. And yeah, I'm, I'm actually fit doing this process that you're talking about. And it's really, you know, connecting me to my creativity in a deep way. That's uh, not so fearful. It's almost like yeah. I'm writing it in my astral plane or something. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I, that that's your language. Of course, I would say that your brain's just working. It's just, you're asleep. But your brain's just working. It's doing lovely work. In 2004, there was a big German study, a study by German researchers who finally, after 100 years, Freud wrote, wrote the interpretation of dreams in 1899. So that's 120 years ago now. And we've been fixated on dreams for an awfully long time. Finally, some German researchers awoke people in non-REM sleep rather than REM sleep. And they discovered that Poets were writing poetry. Mathematicians were solving math puzzles. People were thinking in their domains, whatever their domain was. They were thinking. It's not about dreaming. They were thinking. And that's what you're doing. You're, you're allowing your thinking brain to think, and then you're, you're mining it. You're processing that, or you're just letting it happen. You just use easy language. And do you think that people are, trying to, happen. Yeah. Do you think people are trying to work their problems out as well? Like that's why maybe they wake up with anxious, like say if they are in a relationship that they need to end or a job that they need to leave and they wake up anxious. Maybe. Absolutely. And you can, you can present your brain with any kind of problem. I had a client, um, middle-aged woman whose husband got one of those terrible cancer diagnoses and he was, didn't have long to live. 
Mm. And the question she couldn't answer for herself was how to tell the children. So there were adult adult children, and she just didn't know. That's what was stymieing her. Of course, in a way, she was in denial, denial about the cancer, but that was what was on her mind was how to tell the children. So that's what she gave herself as a sleep thinking prompt. Mm. I wonder, I wonder what's the best way to tell the children. And it came to her in in this sleep thinking way that there was a park that they'd always enjoyed picnics at, and so she was going to set up a picnic, etc. She came up with plan for this very hard thing of telling the kids about the cancer diagnosis. Anything that's on your mind can be organized as a question of this sort and thought about and solutions will come. Yeah. Just goes to show, you know, people always say we only use like 10% of our brain or something like that. And it's like, our minds are, I mean, they are just incredible. Our brains are so incredible. And if you just give it the problem and let it do its thing, the solution will present itself. So yeah. this is very fascinating. There was, there was a writer, uh, Naomi Apple is her name, and she did a book called Writer's Dreaming. She was a literary escort in the days when publishers um, put sent writers on tours more often than they do now. They would hire somebody in each city to drive the writer around from gig to gig. And she had that job. Naomi had that job in in Northern California, in Marin, I believe. And so if a Stephen King was in her car, she got in the habit of asking all of these famous writers, what do you dream about? Mm. And that became a book called Writers Dreaming. But it turned out that writers didn't want to talk about what they were dreaming about. They wanted to talk about how they solved problems by sleep thinking. They all, everyone had a story about how they were stuck in a book somewhere. One story that comes to mind is the the fellow, I don't remember his name, and I'm not even sure the name of his book, but it was about slave traffic. I think the book was called The Middle Passage, if I remember correctly. And he got stuck because he needed God to appear on the slave ship and he couldn't come up with a non-cliched way to have God appear. He was just stuck. The way creative people get stuck sometimes, not having an answer to a question. And so he engaged in not my sleep thinking process and in the age old sleep thinking process of just relaxing and thinking about it while asleep. And the answer came to him that a certain kind of totem would appear in the whole. In other words, he came up with an answer but he didn't try to fight with it. People who don't get their work done are doing more fighting than they need to. There is a, they need to relax into the work. And this sleep thinking process is one aspect of releasing into the work. I was talking to someone else the other day about a book that I hadn't thought about in a long time called Journey, Journeys to the Center of the Mind which is about, this is going to sound awfully technical and goofy, but about neuronal gestalts. But all that means are when we have a thought, neurons gather to do that work. That's all a thought is, is 100 million or 200 million or 300 million neurons gathering together to do some work. Well, every time those 300 million neurons gather together to remember to mow the lawn, that's 300 million neurons that are stolen from the billions of neurons that the brain has. So the more small thoughts you have, the less of your brain you have left over to think creative thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's similar to monkey mind in Buddhism. It's, a, it's, a, it's related. It's the idea of if you have lots of small thoughts, you can't think the big thoughts. Yeah. And 
when I was going through some more traumatic things, I had a therapist at one time that told me that basically my, and I was having a hard time holding on to thoughts and memories or uh, he said that it just, my brain couldn't hold it all. It was just like overflowing and yep. so it would just fall out. Mirroring. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Uh, actually, uh, he, I, you know, I, um, I never took any medication because um, I, I was already kind of know that I was very sensitive to stuff like that. But I did really appreciate talking therapy and mm -hmm. who told me that, you know, was okay to feel these emotions and really help walk me back to how to deal with them. And uh, I just, I want to say a good thanks to, you know, my doctor who's Dr. Appleton, but just people that, you know, yeah. do that hard. It's, it's gotta be a hard job to sit with people. Well, there's, I, I did a book called Humane Helping and this sounds like a humane helper. Yeah. And yeah. there's a basic distinction in therapy that we have to make. One is how therapists actually work and what their mandate is. Their mandate is bad. The mandate is to diagnose and treat mental disorders. That's what their license says. What they do, in fact, is better than that. That is, they talk about human things with human beings. And that's what you were getting, is you were getting a human being talking about human things with another human being. And someone who's really smart and trained and that's non-biased, who's got an arm length from you. So, you know, if it's hard right. to, when you're going through trauma, to reach out to those same friends over and over again, because they don't yep. want to in pain, but they get to the point where they don't know how to answer that question for you anymore. So I like this. This was like yep. a really good experience for me because yep. he had an education and he could just, and the first thing I remember saying to him is like, am I a narcissist or am I bipolar? Am I this, that? And no. Like, no, 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 no. And I was like, that's great because I'm just going to be sure I tell everybody that I know I am not those things because you know you get kind of scared that oh hearing all this stuff and I yep. have this I'm sure uh, I'm just guessing but but I'm sure there's a way in which he instilled some hope in you yes I felt um, hope when I left and um, traditional therapy has as had as its goal has as its goal insight but existential therapy which is a branch of therapy has as its goal hope yeah. Which, which I think is a lovely goal, a lovely additional goal in addition to insight, is to make the people we work with feel hopeful, not in a non-reality testing way, not, not in a smiley-faced way, but just to help them begin to picture how things could be different and better, often, if, often because they have some work to do. There's often work involved, and one of the axioms of therapy was that insight without work isn't enough. The work has to follow the insight. But if you combine those three ideas of insight, work, and hope, I think you have a picture of what humane helping looks like. It's to invite people to get a good sense of what's going on, suggest to them what might help in terms of doing, and also make them feel a little hopeful. And exactly why we have your book, Redesign the Mind, is another outlet you know, that might speak to some people in another way to, um, you know, if, especially if they're going through some kind of depression or some kind of hard trauma, you know, seeking yeah. new ways that, um, you know, can get you out of it and when you need it. And, you know, so we applaud you for that. And thank you yeah. for that. If, if I could 
share just a couple of visualizations um, yeah. that connect to, connect to what you were just saying. One simple one has to do with depression, what's called depression. I'd rather use old fashioned words like sadness or despair or those kinds of words, but we'll just call it depression if we have to. And that's the idea of as you enter the room that is your mind, removing the heavy overcoat that everybody seems to be wearing these days. Mm -hmm. This is just as a visualization, it's, it's somatic. You can feel yourself taking off this heavy overcoat as you enter the room that is your mind. And I think that that simple visualization can make a difference. And then with respect to anxiety, it's hard to do any of these visualizations if you're coming to the room that is your mind already anxious. Mm -hmm. So we need ways to be calmer. And one that I really like is, is the snow globe visualization in the book. And clients like this one. And that is, if you shake up a snow globe, in a matter of a few seconds, the snow settles. And if you use that as a metaphor, as, a, as an image of shaking up a snow globe, and as the snow settles, you settle. Mm. It's sort of a beautiful device to help you cut. You, you come into the room that is your mind. You go to your easy chair because now there is an easy chair. You've painted your walls white so it's nice and bright and cheery in there. Gotten some of the clutter out. You've got your windows open and a breeze is coming through. And now on, on this little side table is your snow globe. Just shake it and start to settle as it settles. That will put you in the best frame of mind possible for doing whatever it is you came to do there in the room that is your mind. And your windows are open. So if someone comes in that you don't want, you just let the breeze take them. <laughs> no, by the way, in, in, in terms of that, uh, I've, it's, good, it's good to mention that we also need an exit door. We have a door to get in. <laughs> we want an exit door too, because there are so many things we want to get rid of. Just kick out the exit door. So many thoughts that we have. Uh, I try to invite all clients to get the following idea really clear in their minds. That is the idea of thinking thoughts that serve them. That's mm -hmm. different from true and true or false thoughts. People get it into their heads that if, if they've thought a true thought, they've got to stick with it because it's true. Nope. Mm -hmm. You only want to stick with a thought if it serves you, not if it's true. What do I mean? Let's say you're a writer, you go into a bookstore, maybe some Barnes and Noble is reopening somewhere and you go into a bookstore. And you hear yourself say, wow, there are a lot of writers out there. That's a true thought. No mm -hmm. one's going to dispute the veracity of that thought. That's a true thought, but it's not a thought that serves you to think. Because in two or three days, you're going to stop writing. You won't even know why you stopped writing because there was so much competition and you didn't feel like you had a chance. So yeah. we have to hear these true thoughts. Wow, there are so many writers out there. And then we have to dispute true thoughts. We go, not dispute them on the veracity. You can't say, no, there aren't so many writers. That's not right. You have to say, no, that's not a thought that's serving me. Mm. The better thought is, I have a chance, or I'm going to prove the exception, or I love my work, or whatever the better thought is, you need the comeback thought to dispute the true thought that isn't serving you. And, you know, I want to, um, I know we're going to wind down in a second here, but I have a quote that's been on my desk forever, and it's, it's really relevant to this topic conversation of creativity. And it's from Andy Warhol. And he says, don't think about making art, just get it done. Let everyone else decide if it's good or bad, whether they love it or hate it, while they are deciding, make even more art. And that's one of my favorite little sayings. Just yep. you got to 
you can't ha let people's thoughts of how they're going to interpret. Let me just piggyback on that, if I may. Pavarotti has a quote I like, which is, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. I think a lot of creative people badmouth themselves because they think they're not disciplined enough. In fact, they're not devoted enough. They're not in love with their work enough. They're not curious enough, enthusiastic enough. That's the place to look for motivational juice is in the area of love, not discipline. Well, I think that's a great thing to end on right now. And I uh, just wanted to thank you so much for your time today. And thank you to Mango Publishing and Gina over there for putting us together and always being a support of The Liberated Healer. And we're going to see you again in another book in a couple weeks. So we're excited to go through that one because you just keep pumping them out. Yeah. You obviously have the mind that can do all these right, you know, creative explorations. And so it seems to be working. So yeah, things, things still interest me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we appreciate all your um, dedication to helping people remove the sadness out of their life mm -hmm. to be more creative. Yes. Thank so, you so much for having me. Great being yes. here. Thank you. Thank you. And this is the Liberated Healer podcast. If you need anything, Gina at liberatedhealer.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at Liberated Healer Podcast. And that is going to wrap it up for us today. Bye for now, everybody. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us online at theliberatedhealer.com, on Instagram at Liberated Healer Podcast, or on Facebook at The Liberated Healer. Give us a follow, subscribe, send us a message if you so feel, and thank you for your support. Podcast.